0: <laughs> hey, you do, you you do, you Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome. Today we are going to crack the prophetic code at Tom's Talmudish. Here's a brief refresher. It's a refresher if you joined us in the previous episode. And if you didn't, I think you should go back and listen, but in the meantime, so that you can watch, listen, and understand now, let me just share the following. We're talking about the Sukkah. Specifically, we're discussing the enclosure, so the temporary hut that we dwell in each year for seven days outside of Israel, eight days, on Sukkot. The temporary hut that the rain can get through. And the wind can blow through the cracks. That exposes us to the elements and reminds us that actually we live by God's grace and with God's certainty. And we remember that Hashem, Almighty God, took the Jewish people out of Egypt and shielded and protected them. So, the question, the question is, what makes the sukkah a sukkah? The question is, do we need to have four walls? Can you have a window? About a door? Uh, Can we miss a number of portions of those partitions? This was the question. And there's uh, a lot to be said about it. We talked a lot about it. So at present, we had this, this dispute. And the dispute was, do the walls of the sukkah require four walls or three walls? Now, I have to tell you that the question of four walls or three walls isn't for complete walls. The question is, could we have two complete walls, and then a little bit, because there's an oral tradition that tells us that one of the walls doesn't have to quite be complete. And then there's another oral tradition that says, yeah, there has to be three walls. It's the fourth wall that can be somewhat incomplete or mostly incomplete. So really the question that becomes is it. Two-and-a-half walls or three-and-a-half walls? Two-and-a-bit or three-and-a-bit? This was the question. And we trace this back to its scriptural source. Now, of course, if you didn't see the previous episode, maybe scratching your head. What do you mean you traced it to a scriptural source? If the scripture says it explicitly, what then is the question? Well, the scripture isn't so explicit. It's something we have to derive And learn from, extrapolate from the words of the Scripture. Because that's the nature of Scripture. When Hashem speaks to us in prophetic terminology, He leaves a great deal for us to discover. That's the oral tradition that comes along with the written tradition. And why Hashem chooses, why Almighty God elected to do it that way is a discussion that is beyond the purview of this particular class. But let's just say... That's the way it is. Well, then how could we have a discussion about whether the Scripture does or doesn't say it? Why don't we just open the book and see? Aha. Uh-huh. Well, so that led us to look at two verses which I found in the book of Leviticus in Parshas Emor. And last week, I, 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 I thought I was clear about the source. I thought I had read the Pesukim out loud, but somebody... Uh, Someone mentioned that. Could you please read the sources? So I'm going to try to read to you from the Chumash. The Chumash, the the, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. This is the third book of it's Leviticus, and it's talking about the festival that we celebrate for seven days in the seventh month. In verse 41, it says, "V'chagotam oto chag You must celebrate this holiday. It doesn't say what the holiday is yet. It just says you celebrate this holiday. Shivat yamim, for seven days, Bashana in the year, and that this is going to be Chukat olam, it is an eternal rule that applies for all of the generations. And when does it take place? I'm glad you asked. In the seventh month, Oto, you should have this celebration. Now, the seventh month, of course, is what we call in today's day and age, Tishrei. It's seven months from the exodus. The first month the Torah intones is the month in which you experience your national birth. We call that Nisan. So in the seventh month, there's the seven-day festival. We don't really know anything about this festival yet. The other day, than other day we're supposed to celebrate it, and it's going to go for seven days in the seventh month, and it's something that is applicable eternally in all of our generations. And in verse 42 and in verse 43, we get the details of what we're supposed to do or how we're supposed to celebrate. The Torah says, Basukot Teshvu Shivat Yamim. You have to live in these huts, these temporary dwellings, for a seven day period. And we know that the roof of this has to be made from vegetative matter that's cut. But that doesn't say in the scripture. That's called schach. That's called the foliage that covers the sukkah. And then the Torah says the continuation the balance of verse 42 Pasuk Membes, Shivat Yamim Seven days Kol HaEzrach Israel, All of the citizens or native Israelites Yeshvu Basukot They're going to sit in the sukkah. So here we have Basukot, and we have again the word written Sukkot. And why are we going to do this? This is rather unusual. The Torah is telling us why we do this. So that your generations will know key for or that. Basukot, Hoshavti, et Bnei Israel. I figuratively had the Israelites live in huts which is a dispute what this means, whether it's quite literal, temporary dwellings or the clouds of glory that enveloped us, and that God provided for us either way. When he took us out of Egypt, and the Pasuk finishes off, and it says, Ani Hashem Elokechem, I am the Lord your God. So don't you worry. You just do what I say. And I'm going to take care of you for it. Okay, that's very nice. So the scripture doesn't say anything about the walls of the sukkah. It just says you should dwell in this, in this uh, temporary dwelling. Um, hello, and Hello, Mr. Flanchico. If anybody has questions, you can post it right here in the live chat. If you're watching on uh, Facebook, come on over to YouTube because I'm not looking at Facebook now. I won't see it until after the class. And of course, if you have any questions, please stop me. So that's the pasuk. That's the verse. Okay? The verse doesn't say anything about four walls or five walls. Aha. True. So last week we learned... That there is a distinction, oftentimes, between the way a word in the Torah is written or spelled out and the way the Torah is read, the vocalization of those words. So how I vocalize that word is a sacred tradition, because the truth is that there are many words in Hebrew which can be read in a variety of different ways. They can have different meanings. They can have different tenses. Uh, You have to know how to read the Torah. This is what we call the Nikud, the punctuation. That's the nature of Hebrew. English, for example, does not have any punctuation. Uh, proverbially speaking, um, there is only one way to read most English words. You can mispronounce them or, or not, but the wor- this is the word. Hebrew is a very, very different language. And there are words that can be made up of exactly the same Hebrew letters. And they can mean... Very different things. Very different things. And then there are ways you can read a word. So it can be written in singular tense, but read in plural tense. And this is called the mikra or the misora. Is it the scripture or is it the tradition? Meaning the written word or how it's vocalized. So, these words are read in the plural form. But they're written in singular form. And so, what we talked about in the previous episode was that if we say that there is aim, literally mother, or the more authoritative version, that which we follow in the event that we have a seeming discrepancy between the two different ways, that if you look at the Mesaurus, if you look at the way that it's it's, uh, vocalized, so that's going to be different than the way that it's written. And if you look at the way it's written, you're going to see that it's written twice in singular tense and once in plural tense. But if you look at the way that it's read it's always read in plural and that becomes a way we add up whether there's in the end enough extra mentions of the word sukkot because plural the minimum is two do we have enough for what we call four walls or are there only enough words to include three walls because the amount of words or the amount of sukkot that are being mentioned Each becomes emblematic of, or a representation, a representative of one of those walls. So if it says Sukkot, plural, multiple times, then we know we're talking about multiple walls. And if it says Sukkot, plural, only once, and then the other times are single, then we don't have as many Sukkot, if you will, or as many walls, if you will. So this was the dispute. This, this, the Gemara suggested, is a dispute if there's aim le'mikra and or aim le'misorat. So basukot, basukot, basukot. If you take a look at the words basukot, and if you're going to read them each time as plural, and you read it all three times as plural, how many walls do you have? Or how many sukkot do you have? Well, the answer is that... The Chachamim took this uh, tradition that the amount of time it says Sukkah in the Pasuk is teaching of us about the walls in the Pasuk. And therefore, they're read in homogeneous fashion, but they're written differently. Because the first two times it says Sukkot, which is read plural, but it's written without a vav. And that makes it singular. It's only the third time that the Torah writes the word sukkot with a vav as well. And therefore, the question is, what's the mother? What's the greater authority? What's the greater emphasis? If we say, em and the main thing is, the tradition, the way it was passed down. So if it's the way it's passed down, the tradition, the way it's written in other words has to be written in a precise fashion. So if it's written in a precise fashion, then that's what you're going to look at. But if we say it's micro, the way it's read, the way it's vocalized, so then the main drasha is always going to be looked at, not the way it's written, but the way it's vocalized or read. And this became the machlekes between the Rabbanon and between Rabbi Shimon. The Rabbanon said that there is aim limisoret In other words, the main thing is the verses of the Pasuk. Not the way it's vocalized, but the way the tradition, the precise way the Torah is passed down to us. And therefore, we only have enough extra Sukkot, three walls. Where Shimon says, no, no. The way it's read is most important. And Because the way it's read is most important, we are going to have... Plural each time. And so, one gets used for the sukkah itself, and, and we end up with enough for four walls. And then we have an oral tradition that tells us that one of those walls doesn't have to be a full wall, it has to be a partial wall. That's called halacha le All right, that's a very brief refresher and a synopsis of what we learned before. So the Gemara gave us two answers. One answer was, this is the dispute. That we look at the Mesorah the way it's written, or do we look at the mikra, the way it's read? And then the Gemara came back and said, you know what? Maybe kule alma, maybe everybody says, yes, yeah, shem mikra. The way it's read, that's most important. Well, in that case, what would the discussion be? Ah, the question would be, do we need to have a verse in the scripture for the concept of the schach, the covering, or not? And here, the Gemara is going to introduce now an additional two ways of expounding these verses. And then we go into an entirely new approach. Although this approach doesn't take itself from the actual Pentateuch of five books of Moses. Rather, it goes into the book of Isaiah. Do you want to go get yourself a Gemara? You want to get a Gemara to look inside? Yeah? So you're looking for the at sukkah. It's going to be the, the little one over there. <laughs> okay. You see what it is? Right up there. One shuffle. Oh, you got it. Is that sukkah? No, it's not masechet Sukkah. I think you got to go a shelf over. You're looking for masechet Sukkah. No, on the middle shelf. All right, if you gonna figure me. I'm gonna help somebody. I'm gonna just. Somebody gets up a safer sixty (laughs) two B six B. All right, boys and girls, I'm sorry about that little delay. Let's get right into it. So the Gemara says, "The And if you will, there is another way to explain or to answer the reason for this argument. So before we go into the next way, in addition to the preface I gave you, I want to like, ask you a question. What was wrong with the first way? Now, granted that regardless of whichever scenic route we take, we're going to end up at the same destination. The destination is destination. The machleik is between the chachamim and the b'shimen, and the halacha is like the chachamim. Two walls and a bit makes a sukkah. Why is it relevant? Why is it important for us to have multiple possibilities in sourcing or tracing this sukkah code, as we called it. And the answer has everything to do with cracking the prophetic code. Now, when I say prophetic, I'm referring to the oral tradition. I'm referring to God's communication to humankind. Because because the truth must be told the scripture is very important the written word is very important but without the written word we really have nothing the torah is a closed book the torah is a closed book because all of the things that are talked about in the torah are not clear they're not explicit without the oral tradition Take any mitzvah. You should eat matzah. Well, what is matzah? You should uh, take four kinds of vegetation. Which four kinds of vegetation? You should blow a horn. What's a horn? How do you blow it? How do you sound it? You should put on tefillin. What are tefillin? You should affix it to your doorpost. Affix what to your doorpost? You should rest on the seventh day. How do you rest? What is called the cessation of work? what does or doesn't comprise the concept of shechita, the kosher ritual slaughter. And it's true, the Torah does kind of spell out which animals are kosher, but doesn't tell you how to make it kosher. So without the oral tradition, we have nothing, absolutely nothing. (laughs) In fact, the Rambam calls Torah and mitzvahs. He says, the Torah is the scripture, the mitzvah is the oral tradition. A Torah without mitzvahs Forgive me, it's not Yiddishkeit. So for all the people who tell you this mumbo-jumbo that the rabbis made it up and I just want to go with the scripture, that's absolute ridiculous Narishkeit. It can't be. Because without the oral tradition, we we have no sacred tradition. We have no written tradition. But more importantly, without the oral tradition of how to read the words, the words themselves lose their meaning. You need to read it right, because the nature of Hebrew is that just about every single word can be read in multiple tenses, and many, many words can have multiple meanings, quite literally. And it depends, of course, how you read it. So there are words that are written with the same same sounds, same phonics but, they're, but they're, they mean different things because they're, they're written with different letters. So a melech with a chaf is a king and melech with a ches is salt, and they're very different things. <laughs> they sound the same, but they're very different things. But then there are Hebrew words which can be read a particular way, and mean one thing, same spelling, and read somewhat of a different way, with different, different vowelization, and they mean something very different. Because of this, there's like a fascinating halacha in Shulchan Aruch. In in Shulchan Aruch, and I'm reading to you from the Shulchan Aruch, in chapter 274, in the seventh subsection, the Shulchan Aruch says, Sefer Hamanukad, a Torah that has the little dots written into it. You know, every bar mitzvah boy knocks his brains out trying to learn how to memorize, not the words themselves, because otherwise it's not a kosher, Kriya, you have to read from the actual Torah. But if you just read or look into the Torah, if you don't know how to read or how to pronounce the words, you're going to be making some terrible mistakes. So why don't we just put vowels in the Torah? Wouldn't that be easy? You know, the bal korah, the person who's reading the Torah, has to memorize this. And it's so hard for to memorize. And, and sometimes he makes some a mistake and half to shul starts screaming. Why don't we just put little dots in So so the answer is you're not allowed to. And the Aruch says a sefer hamanukud, a torah which has little dots written into it pasul. A sefer torah like that is unfit, can't be used. And the Aruch goes further. It says even if somebody wrote vowels into it, vafilu hisirim hanikud, even if the vowels were removed or scraped off, no good not kosher. And the same is true if you put uh, periods, sentences. You're not allowed to have that. Now, why not? Like what's, what's wrong with that? Wouldn't it make life easier for so many people? So the Taz says, and forgive me because I can't read anymore. The Taz says, why? Why is it so important for us to have a Torah without vowels so that we shouldn't have to knock our heads out trying to memorize the vowels? He says, Hatam, the reason is because we learn Yesh Aim Limesorah, that there is a mother, so to speak, to the tradition. The Kivan Sheminukad. And because this Torah has vowels written into it, so if it has vowels written into it, then ainkan elamikra, all you have is scripture, all you have is Hebrew. But you don't have Mesora. You don't have the way. It has to be read. He said, in that case, El the Loima So then and why is it a problem why, if you take it away? So the Ta says the reason here is because it seems that the sofer was not Khosheshlemasaurus, that the sofer, the scribe, was not a serious fellow. And therefore, the Torah he wrote is called counterfeit. Because he didn't believe in what he was writing. In other words, if he doesn't believe that the way it's written is something that was passed down orally, then he's deficient in his faith. And a person like that, he can't write a Sefer Torah. So clearly, it's really important. You know, The way we read the word, the oral tradition that comes along with it, is something of overriding importance. Here's something interesting which is found in the Bet Yosef which is the commentary on the Tur. Rabbi Yaakov Balaturum wrote the forerunner, the system that was later used by the Bet Yosef himself compiled the Shulchan Aruch. He says there is a responsa from Nachmanides, from Ramban, in which Ramban says, and you forgive me, i take off my glasses. He says that the reason that we would make a Sefer Torah that has little vowels written into it, unfit, is because we have to have a Torah the way it was given to us at Sinai. How was the Torah given at Sinai? It was given with letters. It was given with phonics, with pronunciation. One was written and one was oral. That's the way a Torah has to be. And he says, Therefore, quoting Rabbeinu Yeruchim, was a great Rishon, he says that if a Torah is written like that, even if you take away the nikud, it is still rendered unfit. Ki yesh em lemikra There is both the written word and the oral word. Both are critically important. Ve'im menakta, but if you put little vowels in it, ain't han then we don't have any oral tradition about how it should be written. And once you take that away, you don't have a Torah. So, What you can see from this is that we place a tremendous amount of importance on the oral tradition of how the words are supposed to be read. And therefore, to say that there is a dispute between Rabbi Shimon and the sages, if aim Mikra or aim l'misoros is a difficult thing to swallow. Because it's as if the Chachamim are saying... Well, we just look at the scripture. We just look at the mikra, we look at, look at, the, at, the, at, the, at the words, and, and that becomes our, our primary thing. And it in some way diminishes the value of the oral tradition. Now it's true that I shared with you in the previous episode that Teisvah says, nobody argues that there is an amlimicidus and an mikra. that you have a tradition for both the way it's written and the way it's read. No question about that. So if there's no question about that, what's the argument about? So the explains the argument is when they seem to be at opposite ends of the spectrum, when they seem to clash or contradict, the question is, which should you follow? Now, you understand that if we see the written and the oral traditions as clashing and contradicting, that that's not ideal. Everybody understands that. That's not an ideal situation. It it, it may be what's happening here, but it's far better to kind of diminish or immorulate that kind of clash so that, no, 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 they shouldn't be clashing, actually. And there really isn't a question. Everybody says, you follow the Scripture, of course, and you follow the way it's read, of course, and there is no clash. Okay, well, if there's no clash, why do they have an argument? Ah, so the second answer was... That's, uh, the question is, do you need a special teaching for the actual covering? Now, the Gemara is going to continue to push this idea forward, this concept where we are minimizing the clash or the dispute so that everybody can be on the same page, everybody can be in agreement with regard to the big things, but there is a technicality here that they're arguing about. So we've closed the gap. We've minimized the dissent. Everybody's almost entirely on the same page, but there's a technicality. That's a far better way to go than suggest that the sages have totally different views of how to expound and teach the Torah. So I hope that explains it, and that's, I, I believe, that's why the Gemara comes back with the Iboyasima. So there's, and if you will, ibo is the literal translation as, and if you will, here is another way for us to be able to look at this. All right, Vav, Ahmed base six side B. We should be maybe um, six side B3 or something like that. Two? Two,
1: three, yeah. Two,
0: three. Side two, number three. Or maybe don't to. The boy says, "Mom," says the Gemara, and if you will, you could say, "The chul that everybody agrees. The Chachamim and Rabbi Shimon, Yesh. aim lemesires. The oral tradition, the vocalization of the words is extremely important. And we're not minimizing that. And we're never suggesting for a moment that you should only look at the written word and not give credence to the oral tradition of how the word is read. So if so, why are the Chachomim then saying you need only three walls? After all, we have four mentions. And four mentions about a sukkah in these two verses should give us the source for four walls, say shimon. So the Gemara says, V'hochah, and this particular instance with regard to the sukkah surrounding, the barriers, the legal barriers that comprise the wall of the sukkah, V'hochah Miflegi. This is what they're having a dispute about. They're not arguing about the big things. Mar one opinion is, Ki asoi hilchaso, Ligorea. When we have Hilchasa, Hilchasa is a code for the prophetic oral ideas. So there are multiple prophetic codes. There's the prophetic code of the scripture and that's the way the scripture is written. And it's written with a precise amount of letters and a precise amount of space and a precise amount of, 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 of dots and various other little characters that show up. Everything is precise, everything is exact, from crowns to, to, uh, to, to special markings. Every single piece of ink in the Torah is accounted for, and everything has a meaning. Okay. Everything's got a meaning. That's great. And then we have Hilchasa. What's Hilchasa? Hilchasa literally means the rules. So where are the rules. The Torah doesn't give you rules, per se. Where's the rule book? The Torah says, put on tefillin. That's the commandment. Put on tefillin. Every single day. What are tefillin? This is all halacha Moshe Messina. Moshe Rabbeinu came down from the mountain and he said, My dear friends, this is what God said. He said, Ukshartimla le'ota yadecha. You're going to tie a sign. and Tie it upon your hands. He says, there's going to be a totafot, a frontlet with many com- four compartments. And it's going to be on the top of your head at the crown of your head between your eyes. And the Jewish people said, okay, Moshe, tell us what does this multiple compartment frontlet look like? What's it made out of? What shape is it? How big or small is it? What color is it? Funny you should ask. So Moshe Rabbeinu explained. He gave the exact dimensions or at least the shape. What Pair of tefillin. Tefillin are square. And the square box of the tefillin sits on what looks like a platform. And this, if it's the headset, will be actually comprised of four individual compartments that are pressed together with four different parchments. And if it's the handset, it's going to have one empty cavity, one empty box and in there there will be rolled up four portions of the Torah, the same four portions. These will be written on the same long strip of parchment. And and they're black. What's black? The boxes. The boxes have to be black. And the straps have to be black. Where does it say black in the Torah? It doesn't say black anywhere. You're right, it doesn't say black. But that's hilchasa. So this is called Halachala HaMoshem And we learned a little bit about this two episodes ago. We actually talked about the concept of halacha l'mosem isinai. I have a question from Anne or Liddy. Is there no capital letters in Hebrew? No. That's a very good question. There are no capital letters. No. No capital letters. What there are are three separate fonts. There's oisius ravravin, large letters. Oisius benanim middle or average font and then there's otiot zirim, small little tiny font. And yes, on average the Torah uses the average font. On rare exceptions we have the large font and on rare exceptions we have a very small font. And yes, each of those details has a special meaning attached to it. A big base, a little base, a little gimel. yep, there's a reason. Many reasons. So Hilchasa is really a code name. Of course, we call Halacha, all of Jewish ritual law is called Hilchasa, but Hilchasa in the Gemara is a code name for a particular prophecy. This is the prophetic oral code. This means Moses said it. Moses said it. And by the way, if Moses said it, there's no questions about it. If it's something which requires exegesis, if we have to extrapolate it with the hermeneutical principles from the Torah itself, there sometimes we could have disputes because there are different schools of thought of, of how the hermeneutical principle works. But if Moses said it, then he said it. There's no argument This film should be black or psychedelic pink. It's only black film. That's it. No white film, no gold film, no red film, no blue film. Not even green film, only black film, halakhala Mi Sinai. There are only squared film, there are no triangled film, no hexagon-shaped film. There are certainly no round film, only squared film, halakh misinai. Now we learned that there is a halaqal mosh Allah Mi Sinai. that one of the walls of the sukkah does not have to be a complete wall. It's just the beginning of a wall. And as long as it's framed then the frame kind of fills itself in. It doesn't have to be. And we learned also that even the two intact or three intact walls, that also doesn't have to be exactly so. There's something called gudasic and there's something called Lovud. And if that sounds funny, go back in two episodes or three episodes and you'll watch the class and everything is clearly explained. So no, no, no arguments about this. No arguments about that a partial wall is considered to be a whole wall. There's no arguments or discussions about this. What is there a discussion about? This is, this is fascinating. The discussion is about does come to add or come to subtract? Does it come to add to the Scripture or subtract from the Scripture? That is to say, the Machlaikis Ba Maikom Ifligi. Mar Sovar, one opinion is, Ki asoi hilchaso. If there is a halachala moshe mi sinai, then the halachala moshe mi sinai is, Ligareya. It's coming to remove what we thought was necessary. In other words, coming to be lenient; it's giving us an added leniency. So the the pasuk seems to say something, and then the of the says, "No, no, no; it's not as severe; it's not actually what it looks like. It's it's not as onerous as you would have thought." Omar Savar, a one says, and this is the opinion of Rabbi Shimon. Ki asoi when we have Hilchasa, it's l'hoysif, it's coming to add. So what does this mean? If we say, if we are to say that there is aim l'mesodos, that we are going to be looking at the actual verse, actual verse, So the question then becomes, if it's, it's aim limesiidis, then we have three walls. If it's aim lemikra, the way it's vocalized, you have four walls. But if it's the way it's Limesiidis, we got three walls. OK. So if we have this aim Liidis, and all we have is then three walls in the scripture. And then we have Allah-mossha Messina. And Allah says, a partial wall is also a wall. You say, aha, a partial wall is also a wall. So does that mean we have three walls in the Scripture and we're adding a partial wall to those three walls? Or do we say the Scripture talks about three barriers? Because it says we have the You know, the way we darshan, the way we expound the verse, the way it's written, one Sukkot is plural, and then one Sukkot is singular, that gives you three. And the first time it says Sukkot, that's for the mitzvah of the sukkah itself. That's to teach you about the sukkah. So, in the scripture, no questions. We're going to look at the words. The words give us three walls. Ah, But then we have an oral tradition the chachamim say if there's an oral tradition it's coming to diminish the demands not to add that's the way they look at it they said the, the god gave us an oral tradition to diminish the responsibility we have to be lenient but shimon says no, no no Our oral tradition is coming to add it's coming Eight mean in Hebrew? I'm not sure what that means. Eight is not a Hebrew figure. You mean the number eight? That which people use for codes or infinity? Anyway, the, the, the numbers are actually of Arabic origin. There are no numbers in the Torah. No, no numerical numbers. There's numerical equivalent of using Hebrew letters. So this is this is the machalikis now so i, I was thinking like, I, I don't know i don't listen, like, say this i don't get it yet it's 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 so let me give you like a metaphor to help you help you understand this you know people say it like this you need a rav to be makel you need a rav to find a leniency not to be mahmir not to find a stringency that is to say a rav is a person who has a profound grasp of the halacha and its application. So the Rav is a person, because of a lot of learning and a lot of hands-on experience, understands how sometimes the halacha can be applied in a manner which we take the halacha extremely seriously, but we look for creative ways to make something permissible according to halacha. And a, a big Rav will be able to come up with what we would call a big Kula. We come to the big leniency. We have a vexing problem. We have the situation. We don't know what to do. This is going to cost a tremendous amount of of of, of fallout, or or it's going to be very painful for people to have to deal with this. How are we going to make how are we going to make it work? And the answer is that the Rav, through his intuition and through his experience, will find a leniency. There's a silly story they tell. It's just a silly story, but it actually is maybe not so silly. and um, so the story was that there was a, a, was a wedding in the shtetl you know the fiddler on the roof uh, picture of the wedding and somebody by mistake spilled some milk into the meat stew they were drinking a coffee and it was and it spilled milk and it got mixed up and people realized that there was meat milk in the meat and you know what that means for jewish people it's a disaster now in the shtetl they were very poor and they didn't uh, slaughter a goat every day of the week so to speak this was a big deal. That's a wedding. The whole town came out. And there was no food. This was the food for tonight. They slaughtered the goat. They made a big meat stew for everybody. Lots of potatoes and carrots and leeks and onions and all whatever else they could find so that a uh, a fair-sized meat becomes a huge shtetl-sized meal. But now it's it's not kosher. What do you do? So they know they know the law, you know, the law is if, it, if it's one sixtieth, the milk is only one sixtieth. It could be nullified. And they measured, and uh, it didn't work out. Maybe there was forty times the volume, maybe fifty times. But, but once upon a time, people had respect. You have to go to the rav. can't paskin. You don't rule halachas by yourself. You go to a rav. Okay. So they came to the rav. The rav listened to the shayla. I mean, it's, it's open shut. It's like milk is milk in. Milk is mixed in. It's, it's not even a question. And the Rav said, Give me an hour. Give me an hour. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a ruling in an hour. And an hour later, they come back, and the Rav says, The stew is kosher. And the people's mouths drop open. I can't be kosher. I mean, I understand there's a wedding and there won't be food tonight, but it can't be kosher. The Rav says, It's kosher. And tonight, I will eat at the wedding. The Rav didn't used to stay for dinner. I'm staying for dinner. I will eat at the wedding. Anyway, the whole town is a buzz. The Rav made a psaq. How, how could he make such a psak? And it was a mystery. Nobody ever knew. And people didn't want to eat. They, you know, it's God-fearing Jews. And the Rav sits down and he eats. And they watch him eating and chewing. So if he's eating, it must be good. Everybody else eats. Many, many years later, the story comes out. The story comes out that the milkman, Tevyeh the Milchiker, had passed away already. And the Rav wasn't alive anymore. And that's when the story came out. So the Rav had called in the milkman. And he said to him, Tevye, this is just between us. I need to know how much water you mix into your milk. And Tevye was aghast. He says, how could you accuse me of being a thief? I, I, I give 100% pure milk. What do you mean? I, I milk it myself. The Rav says, spare me. I, I, I it's fine I know you have to make a living I know nobody knows the difference I, it's all fine just tell me the quantity and he denies it and this goes on for a little while and finally he breaks down crying and he says oh you know, forgive me I am not dishonest I just I'm desperate and I have mouths to feed and I just the, the, the cow sometimes just it's fine it's fine just tell me how much water what was the ratio So he tells him. and the love made a calculation that the milk as it was watered down, so that's already part of the 160th, together with the meat, was exactly a 60th. And so was kosher. Why, why am I telling this to you? I'm, I'm telling it to you because this is an illustration of anybody can make a psa kalacha, anybody can make a ruling which is stringent. You could take the extra mile, be stringent. Anybody can be stringent. Question is, the question is, can you find a reliable and authentic leniency? It doesn't, it's it's not cute to say, oh, it's okay, it doesn't matter. It's COVID, it doesn't matter. Like ridiculous things people said. That, that's, that's ridiculous. It does matter. Halacha matters a lot. But the question is, can you find a leniency within a halacha? And the greatest of Rabbanim can achieve this. And the bigger thereof, The greater the possibility of being able to creatively apply the halacha in a way which upholds the halacha and will make life easier for people. So this is a a little sidebar. But uh, to me, this illustrates the point we're making here. Why did Hashem give something oral to Moshe? Because He said, you know what? The Torah... The Torah is uh, so so stringent. So here it seems that it's hard to make a sukkah. It's hard to make you know complete walls. So we have a halakhala moshinay, an oral tradition telling us it doesn't have to be a full wall. It could be a creative wall. That's the nature of Alakhal Mosh Messina. was it comes to to, so to speak, to diminish the onerous, seemingly challenging, and difficult responsibilities, that's the nature of Hilchasa. Now, not every Hilchasa comes to minimize. The Hilchasa of black tefillin or, or the sharp knife doesn't come to minimize per se the knife for the shita or the color of the tefillin you put on. Okay. But the idea that here, if the Torah is coming along and saying that a partial wall is a wall, the Chachamam understand it to me, aha. So Hashem is telling us, I told you three walls, and now I'm telling you a partial wall. That means one of the three walls is partial. But the way Rabbi Shimon sees it, God already told us three walls. That's not a question. Now he's telling us something else. Now he's telling us the three walls aren't good enough because, because it has to be a full shelter. But it doesn't have to be a, a whole full wall. You have to add the beginning of a fourth wall so that we can imagine that it's actually four walls. Ah, it doesn't say that in the scripture itself. Okay, the Hilchasa came to complete the picture. It's adding, not subtracting. It's augmenting, not diminishing. Understand it? That's the Machlechus. And in this way, what have we, what have we gained? Again, of course, we arrive at the same destination either way. What have we gained? What we've gained is we've minimized the dispute. Here we had a dispute which wraps itself around the whole Torah. Em l'misores, Mikra. which is the more authentic tradition. Now we're saying nobody argues. We're all on the same page. The scripture is scripture. And every word has to be written right. And of course it has to be vowelized right. And there is no, so to speak, differentiation which has to be drawn. There is no argument in the, in the, of, of, of how we expound. It, or what is there an argument about? The argument about here between the Shimon and the Chachamim is simply how we understand the function, the purpose of Hilchasa. Is Hilchasa coming to complete a picture by adding, or is Hilchasa coming to lighten the load, to make things easier, to diminish the responsibility? That's the question. So having partial walls... That allows for situations where you can't, don't have the materials or the time to make. Absolutely, uh, having a partial wall will allow you. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, our shul sukkah, for example. So uh, last year we were very much in the thick of COVID, Mm -hmm. and people would be uncomfortable to be in a sukkah that was fully closed in. So what did we do? We left it half open, (laughs) right? That's called good asik, and the good asik helped us out. So we actually did have four full walls. But you know what? It was good. Was sick. It didn't matter. Yeah. There was an openness that made people comfortable. Mm-hmm. So that's why it was, it was a good idea to use that kind of leniency. Because more people came into the sukkah this way. Yeah, perfect example. Yeah. So this is the question then. This is the question. Does the halacha come to make things easier or harder? Remember, there was uh, Israeli soldiers fighting in the Yom Kippur War in impossible situations, trying to create themselves a sukkah when they had a little bit of respite. And they had the impossible circumstances. There's all these heroic stories of, of uh, people in, during the war and war times. Who knows what'll be in Ukraine this year? Right? And you, you do the bare minimum. You know, my, 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 uh, my grandfather, my father's father, told me a story many times, which, uh, which I think of every year on Sukkot. It's, it's a very, to me, it's a very powerful story. So the, s- the story was that they were in Kazakhstan. They, they ran, my great-grandfather was arrested by the Soviets, eventually was murdered. And they're in this, like, <laughs> proverbially godforsaken, like this, 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 you know, the edge of civilization. And uh, there was disease and, and, and all kinds of terrible things. Anyway, So my great-grandmother got very, very sick. And and, and she ended up dying, um, like a week after Sukkot or something. And it was illegal to make a sukkah. It was illegal to make a sukkah. And my my grandmother, the last time she got out of bed, my great-grandmother said to my, my Zayde, she said, Mesha, did you make a sukkah? And he said, yeah, I, ma- I made a sukkah. She says, really, you made a sukkah? I said, I made a sukkah. And she said, take me to the sukkah. So his mother couldn't walk. She had the cholera. She was very sick. And he literally held her up And with the last amount of strength. He took her out of this hospital of sorts and took her into some, I don't know, some area. I think he was sick also. I think he was also maybe in the hospital. And you had to camouflage it. The authorities should not know. Communism was forbidden to practice any kind of religion. And it was it was a sukkah it was like like a makeshift kind of thing. My dad is Tamut Chacham. He knew how to use every leniency in the book to make a, a you know, to take a corner of a of an area and then somehow you know make enough enough of a wall and uh, just to be able to get in head and shoulders, just to be able to fit into the sukkah, and to put a little foliage on top, but it shouldn't be obvious. And and they were looking out to sukkahs, and and um, and he told me how his mother uh, squeezed into this little sukkah, and how she. Uh, she was so sick, but how happy she was. They said, Ah, ah, Pesha, sukkah, sukkah. They're looking at the sukkah, ah, sukkah. And that was the last time she walked. I think really the last time she talked afterwards. She went into delirium and went to a coma a little while later. But so, like, yeah, it's nice to have a big, beautiful sukkah. And we have beautiful sukkahs today, Baruch Hashem. And we should, we should. But the question is, how do we satisfy the bare minimum need for a sukkah? And, and that's where the halacha comes in. So if, if you know a halacha, <laughs> you'll know how to make less sukkah into a sukkah. Because to make four walls, anybody can make four walls of a sukkah. You don't have to be a Talmud Chacham for that. To, to know how to make a tiny sukkah with a piece of a sukkah, with a, and this was the question. What does the Hilchus come to do? So that's one approach. Then the gemara gives us a fourth recon- reconciliation. V'yibayaseyma. And if you will, says the Gemara, you could say the Kuli Almo, everybody agrees, Ki hilchasa, hilchesa Sinai, If not, to make it easier. Hashem is not just telling us to make it harder. He told us three walls, then He said, ha ha, you think three walls? No, I want four walls, I want from you. Then why don't you tell us four walls? <laughs> It's 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 more logical, if you will, to say that the halacha le'mesir came to make it more, shall we say, amenable, easier to, to fulfill the mitzvah. So it's ligoreya. It's to diminish the responsibility, the demands that Hashem is making us. So ki el chasol And furthermore, yesh aim le'mesedus. That the way the Torah is written is precisely the way it is. And we're not trying to diminish that. And there's no argument about that. So then what then is the question? We have, we have a very big difference here between the B'shimin and the Sages. The Sages are telling us three walls, which is really two and a bit. And the B'shimin is saying four walls, which is three and a bit. That's, it's a uh, difference between three walls. V'hacha says the Gemara, B'dorishin komiflegi. The question here is if we're darshaning let me just share with you the words of Rashi. Rashi says This is we learned earlier. Sinai That there is a special oral tradition from Moses at Sinai. That you don't need to have a full third wall, and it could be just a tefah. So the Gemara says the question is, Darshan What does it mean, Darshan That means, can you use the first time? Trilah is the beginning. Can you use the first time the Sukkah is mentioned as indicative of a wall necessary? Mar Savar Rabbi Shimon says, it is true that the first time it mentions the word sukkah, it's telling us about the sukkah. That's true. But Darshan Tchileis, in addition to the fact that it's telling us about the sukkah, in addition to this, we can also expound the trilos. And if we expound the trilos, then what we'll say is that in addition to its literal meaning, there's also room for it to add a little bit of description. A little bit of, so to speak, fill in the blanks. So, yes, the first time it says sukkah, it means you have to have a sukkah, and because it says sukkah, it's also telling you about one of the walls of the sukkah. That's what Rishimin says. says. But the Chachamim will say... No, that's, that's not the way it works. That rather, instead of being an emphasis on... on uh, How many walls? The first time we come with the word sukkah, it's to tell you that you have to have a sukkah. Then after it says the word sukkah another few times. Why does it say afterwards another few times? That's to tell you the details of the sukkah. So the question then becomes, is there more than meets the eye? Can a verse have multiple applications? Can it come to tell us about an idea and details? Or when it tells us about an idea, then... That's what it's conveying. When the the idea is already conveyed and the word repeats itself again, so now we're adding details to the idea. We're not talking about the idea itself. This itself, this, This actually boils down to be the big question. And like I said, what we've gained from this is then there's actually no argument on how the verses are expanded at all. The only little argument is when we read this verse, can we read into it twice? But otherwise, there's no question about aimlum Sayyidina Saimlum Mikra. And there's no question about the Halakhalameshamissinae. So in effect, we're minimizing arguments. And this is something that we always try to do. We always try to minimize the dissent or the differences rather than maximize them. So if we could put everybody as close as possible together on the same page, even if we know they're on two different pages and have two different opinions, but if they can be as close as possible, so that's even better. So the Gemara starts off where they seem to be very far apart. And the Gemara says, you know what? They don't have to be so far apart. They could actually be closer together. And we keep moving them closer and closer and closer until they're, so to speak, almost there. And now the Gemara brings an additional teaching. And this is the final teaching of this Gemara. Ravmasna, or as he's called in the Talmud Yerushalmi, Rav Ravmatonam. Omar, he says, Taima de Rebishimin. The reason that Rabbi Shimon says that you have to go ahead and have four walls of the sukkah is mehochah. From a pasuk that is spelled out in the Novi Yeshayahu. What does the Novi say? So the Novi in Yeshayahu, this is found in the fourth chapter of the prophecies of Isaiah. And it is the sixth verse which is also the end of the 4th chapter. And it says like this, it speaks about Hashem creating a cloud by day and a smoke and a glow of fire by night. This is like in the image of the Mishkan that the Jewish people had in the desert. On the mountain of Zion, the entire area of Mount Zion, there's going to be this protective aura and onon and an oshen an noiga e laila, clouds a day fire maybe it means auroras at night and ki al kol kovid chupa, because over all honor overall honor will cover al kol kovid chupa. so the entire jerusalem is so to speak covered enwrapped in a canopy of cloud and fire so everybody sees how great and important Jerusalem is look at that city it's like draped and then the last verse of this fourth chapter short chapter of isaiah goes like this the Sukkot yelotel and these clouds they will be like a canopy shielding jerusalem there will be a shelter For shade. And that'll be Yoimam by day. Mechoyrev from the heat. Ulamachaseh. Ulamistar. Mizerum And there will be like protection. There'll be refuge from the storms and the rains. In other words, this canopy that will protect Yerushalayim by day and night is not only protecting them from attackers, from would-be invaders, but it's protecting them even from inclement weather. Okay? Beautiful. Beautiful teaching. Very nice. So now we know that this is how things are going to be when Mashiach comes. And what in heaven does that have to do with what we're talking about? That's a very good question. The Mepharshim say that actually Rabbi Shimon, who would read into this Pasuk, is not necessarily looking at a verse in Isaiah to define the sukkah, because I mean Isaiah only comes along at the end of this first base of Mikdash. So until then they don't have a sukkah. But rather, some of the say, what Isaiah is telling us in his description of a sukkah, it becomes clear what the Torah meant, and maybe that's why Rabbi Shimon chooses one of the methods we've discussed. Maybe that's why he says but that's why he looks at the in a certain way because the scripture clarified for him what the verse was actually saying. In, other words, in this view, this is not another way that Shimon came to clarity. It is the way he came to the clarity of how the Torah is being clear. Which kind of fits with the way we understand the later scriptures in general. You know, there's a Famous idea, the Gemara Talmud Yerushalmi. It says that when Mashiach will come. We won't need the scripture anymore. We won't, we won't read the scripture anymore. We we'll only have Megillat Esther. So only books can be left. Famous question. What's going on over there? There's a, a Korban commentary on the Talmud Yerushalmi. Discuss this at great length. And the upshot is, in, in, in a word, that the, the scripture is not going to be nullified. It won't be necessary anymore. The Rebbe metaphorizes with the words of another Gemara that says, when the sun is shining, you don't need the candlelight. So now it's not clear how we should expound the verse. We need the, the scripture, the later scriptures, we need the Novi to clarify what the Torah is saying. When Mashiach will come, the lights will be on, the sun will be shining brightly, everybody will see everything. We'll see it all in Torah's Moshe. So the candlelight will not be illuminating anything. But well, this is exactly a perfect example. So it says over here that the Sukkah will be, let's say, okay, what does that teach us? So what? I mean, okay. <laughs> so so I, I mean obviously it's, it's teaching us something. So the way we understand this, the way the Mepharshim explained this is that if we say a machel, the Mister Ubeloy Rashi says, <laughs> Beloi Arba Machit says without four walls, lav machase miseremhu you don't have really coverage from the storm shoharuach meshiv because the wind blows the rain right in if you don't have four walls you don't have shelter with habparutz but the open wall now of course what's the problem with this with this limud the problem with this limud is that even if shimon will tell you that the halakha says that the fourth wall only needs a tefach so if the fourth wall only needs a tefach, <laughs> there is an open wall. There's plenty of room for the rain to get in. So obviously that, that verse isn't talking about the sukkah and it's, it's, it's being used to create the, the image of the sukkah, like the proverbial image of the sukkah, just like that's a prophecy that speaks about this proverbial canopy of protection, that, that it has to be in the image. It means the sukkah has to proverbially speaking represent four walls. It can't be a literal description of the walls because if you take the words of Rashi at face value and then you have a, 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 only a portion of a wall and you still have plenty of room for the rain to, to come in. But that's a minimum. That's a minimum. So you can. Of course you can, but, but, but if we're learning from this verse, you should have to do it. Mm. So, so, so then I, I can't see any other way to understand this that, that it's, it's, it, it is still metaphorical still meta- It has to be metaphorical. If it wouldn't be metaphorical, then well, th- that it doesn't work. Because in fact, even with four walls, like Reb Shimon, one wall is just a portion of a wall and there's still plenty of, of empty space or, or room for the rain to come in. So once you come to that, once, once you understand that this is metaphorical, that, that kind of leads us into a very beautiful teaching. Uh, and, and with this, I'm going to close... I'll close tonight. So the Rebbe spoke about this in 1989. He talked about this and he said an amazing thing. He said that, isn't it strange that we hear about the rain and the storm, but we're not using the word which we're most familiar with when it comes to rain? What, what word means rain in Hebrew? Mashiv yes. haruach or morid hageshem. Zerem and Motor. Now, mutter means rain. Zerem means a stream, a stormy, stormy rain. What does it say? Geshem. It Geshem. So the Malbum the actually has this whole discussion about this. And he says that matar is Geshem. So if matar is Geshem, why did the Apostle choose to say it? And Terebis said an amazing thing. He said zerem is the numeric equivalent of Resh-mem-Zayin is 247. Motar is reish Memtes 249. How many positive mitzvahs are there? There are 248 positive mitzvahs. What does the sukkah shield you from? It shields you from underperforming in your mitzvahs, from saying, ah, too many mitzvahs. I'll go at 247. And it shields you from overperforming or creating unnecessary mitzvahs, mitzvahs Hashem didn't give you. (laughs) So the sukkah then is not just a literal structure. That literal structure has to represent the structure of Yiddishkeit that protects us from chas v'shalom adding or detracting from the Torah because, of course, a Jew is not allowed to add or detract. We have this uh, prohibition of Lo tosif ala And the Rebbe says, and that then becomes the meaning of this verse, so Yerushalayim is protected, but that's in the future, but because the Gemara darshens this, the Gemara understands this to be referring to the actual sukkah, and from it we learn what the sukkah must look like, although not literally. So then we have this beautiful metaphorical teaching of how the sukkah, keeping the mitzvah of sukkah, which really by extension means sanctifying and spiritualizing even ordinary and everyday realities, how that serves, with Hashem's help, Preserve the authenticity and the integrity of our Yiddishkeit, and that, my dear friends, is all we got for tonight. Thank you so much for joining. I hope you found this educational, inspirational, insightful, uplifting. And I look forward to continuing to meet and study Hashem's holy Torah together. May we soon, this year, sit together in the sukkah of David HaMelech with the coming of Mashiach Ben Hayyim. It will be a speedily and in our days. Amen.